0: For those of us who are uh, in Christ and who have been walking uh, the journey of the Christian faith, we know that there are times um, in our Christian life, uh, whether through trying circumstances or the various ways in which our faith is tested, the testing of our faith, that discouragement uh, can set in. And then discouragement can give birth to ingratitude. In some ways, those are two enemies of of a flourishing Christian faith. Uh, Discouragement and ingratitude. Um, This was a real potential for the church in Thessalonica. Uh, We know that this was a fairly young congregation. Uh, The time between this church's birth and coming into existence and its founding from Paul, by Paul and Silas and Timothy, and the time in which he wrote these letters to them likely from Corinth, was not a lot of time. So they were a young congregation, but they had been through much. We learn of that in Acts chapter 17, which is where we learn uh, the, the narrative of how this church came into existence, and through these letters, that these, uh, these believers had endured much suffering. Their faith was costing them. Uh, they were birthed in the midst of affliction. Uh, There were external challenges among the Jews in Thessalonica, stirring up trouble, civil authorities as well. Uh, But there were also internal hardships. Uh, We have learned that these brothers and sisters, some of them were experiencing the loss of loved ones in the Lord, parents or children or siblings, and they were wondering, is there hope beyond the grave? And so Paul wrote to them in 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, telling them not to be a people who grieve as those without hope, pointing them to the consummation and the resurrection, that indeed those dead in Christ will be raised again. But there was potential grief. On top of all that, they were facing false teaching and rumors suggesting that the day of the Lord was already at hand. It had come upon them. It had w- arrived. It had arrived which was what we considered last week. And so it was creating potential alarm and worry in the life of this congregation. And so Paul is writing in the text about which we will see uh, to shore up their hearts. He's writing to encourage them, to encourage them. In a single statement, the the message that will flow from this text uh, is this. Since God has chosen you and set his love upon you, you have great reason to give thanks to God, to stand firm in the gospel of Christ, and to trust in His providential hand, His eternal comfort. Because He has chosen you, because He has set His love upon you, you have reason to give thanks to God, to be grateful, to stand firm, to hold on to the gospel of Christ, and to trust in His eternal comfort. So let's look at that unfold in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it's verses 13 uh, to 17. Listen now to God's Word. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Encouraging words. In the structure of this text... Uh, Paul's encouragement takes, on, uh, takes shape in three ways. The structure itself lends to three uh, avenues or ways of encouragement. The first is in verse 13 and 14, where he offers encouragement by expressing thanks for God's declaration of divine election. Second, in verse thir- uh, 15, he encourages them by exhorting them to stand firm, be steadfast. And then third is in verse 16 and 17. Paul is offering a prayer, a benediction or prayer of supplication for God's providential hand, his eternal comfort. So first of all, we see God's declaration of divine choosing, divine election. Verse 13, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because he chose you as the first fruits to be saved. That word first fruits can mean from the beginning. Some translations uh, go that route. Uh, he chose you uh, from the beginning to be saved. Others suggest it's uh, referring to similarly Christ uh, in his resurrection as the first fruits, uh, that there will be more to come. He is the first fruits, but we ourselves uh, will be resurrected. So perhaps it is suggesting this. They are the first believers, but they are paving a path of much fruit to come. But here we see the people of God have great reason to be full of thanksgiving and gratitude uh, to God for choosing them. Uh, The doctrine of God's election, though it is theologically rich, uh, it almost always comes at us in the scriptures for the very practical purpose of ministering to our hearts. And we see this in other places in the New Testament. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul writes, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption through Christ. To the praise of his glorious grace. In Christ, we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works out all things in conformity to the purpose and counsel of his will. In Ephesians, Paul's purpose is really to show the lavishness of God's grace, layer upon layer of spiritual blessings, that this is a God who does not hold back from his people. In Romans, it takes a little bit different shape. In that wonderful chapter, the 8th chapter of Romans, verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? In Romans, Paul's purpose is really to drive home the assurance that God has a firm grip on his people, even in the midst of the sufferings that we experience as believers, to encourage them. In that way. And it's similar here in Thessalonians. The the doctrine, the words that Paul gives are to encourage the saints that despite affliction or various troubles, they have great reason to be a thankful people. So let's ask a few questions The, the what, the who, and the why questions of God's election, of God's choosing. For what did God choose these believers? Notice the language Paul uses. God chose you to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit, belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is an election to a full life of salvation. A complete salvation. With one sweep and a couple of verses here, Paul is covering the whole life of of salvation from being chosen or elected to the journey of sanctification and growth in the Lord and to the end of glory when we will be perfected as saints at the consummation. So God not only chose a people that they would know the forgiveness of sins, He chose a people so that they would have this glorious, wonderful end. It's an amazing uh, God and an amazing love that he has poured out. And that's a glory that we can't come close to fully grasping in this life. But he chose us so that we would have and know that glory. And who is God chosen? Paul's language is personal. It's particular. He doesn't merely express, express thanks to God that there are an elect, that there are a chosen people. He is thankful that they themselves have been chosen. That that they are chosen by God. We give thanks because God chose you. Paul is using a word uh, that is uh, meaning the choice of something or someone for a particular purpose. God did not choose people randomly. In a sense, by putting names in a hat and drawing them out. Oh, Will Snyder, he's a lucky one. No, that's not how he did it. If you are in Christ, you're not a random choice. It is much more in the spirit of God's words to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. And Paul drives that a particularity and choice by using contrasting language. If you look at the first English word in verse 13, the beginning of our text, it's the word but. But we give thanks to God for you. He's contrasting something here. But that is in contrast to those in the previous verses. If you turn your eyes northward, I think to verses 10 through 12, he defines those and identifies those who are perishing, those who refuse to love the truth, those who are being deceived. But we give thanks to God for you. Why? Because he chose you. He made the ground of your heart soft and fertile so that you would receive the word of God. And Paul emphasizes that in the first and second chapter of his first letter, that you receive the word of God. We're thankful, not as the words of men, but as what it is, the word of God. And it seems one of the reasons Paul is emphasizing here their election by God is because they are enduring much affliction. Remember how Paul began this letter in chapter 1, verse 3. We ought always to give thanks because your faith is growing, your love is increasing, your faith is steadfast amidst persecution and affliction that you are enduring. When times are difficult, the Christian can know he's been chosen by God for a glory that far outweighs this temporary or momentary affliction. And other New Testament authors emphasize election in the midst of that suffering context. Along with the Thessalonians, the the Christians, some suggest, who endured the most suffering in the New Testament are those to whom the Apostle Peter writes. Peter mentions much about various trials and suffering. What does Peter say in 1 Peter 2? But you are a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. He's called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Even in the midst of trials, we have great reason to give thanks to God. We are a chosen people. Perhaps the biggest question is the why question. Why did God choose you if you are in Jesus Christ? It was was that very question in my own life, that very notion of God's election that about 30 years ago, uh, as a middle schooler on a mission trip in Yakima, Washington, one evening after my youth director had given a, a message, a talk on the character of God and God's love that Afterward, I went to be alone. I was just moved uh, in my heart and, and just wept in a field by myself for a long time. And it was that very point. Why? Why would, why would God open my heart? Why would he soften that heart? And why would he choose me? I was not overwhelmed by the idea that God chooses some but doesn't choose others. I was overwhelmed by why he chose me, why he chose me. And if you're in Christ, he's chosen you, and some of our experiences are uh, experientially uh, profound to us. Some of us have a gradual kind of experience. Uh, some of us may not be in Christ, and the free offer of the gospel is put forth to come and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that he would know, that you would know his hand in your life. Why did God choose you? It was not because you were qualified. God qualifies the called. He does not call the qualified. He wasn't looking for a few good men or a few good women, and he discovered you. No. Paul says in Romans 3, there's no one righteous. No, not one. It wasn't because God saw a hidden potential in you that you might go and do great and wonderful things. That's not why. It is because salvation is God's prerogative. It's because God set his love upon you. Paul says in our text, we give thanks to God, brothers, beloved by the Lord. Sinclair Ferguson, I think I've noted before, says there's a great danger in in our faith at times is in is, that is believing that not much has changed uh, in our life but but if you have been elect, if you're chosen of God, everything changes everything changes and certainly your eternal destiny changes. Ephesians one in love God predestined you. Uh, this love was to be at the center of what shaped the Old Testament people of God and their understanding of who they were and are as a result of God's love and, and understanding the character of God. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6 For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people, that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. You see, this is not a natural love. This is not the kind of love that a parent has for a child or a child has for a parent. Or a sibling for another sibling. There's something natural about that love. There's a familial tie. And it's that familial tie that brings about a natural kind of love. That's that's my child. That's my brother. But God set his love upon us when we were not in his family. There was no familial tie. God's love is greater than that kind of love. And it's not the love a friend has for another friend who share common interests or a common background. And it's those common things that we have together that help carry out a, a kind of love, a fondness for each other. Outside of Christ, we had no true interest in the things of God before he set his love upon us, called us to himself. So it's a foreign kind of love. This is a love that is demonstrated by one for an enemy. And that's what we were. Romans 5 tells us we were enemies of God. And it was while we were enemies that God reconciled his people to himself. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, while in a state of rebellion. So it's that that Old Testament Hesed kind of love, that steadfast love. We heard it mentioned in Psalm 5. It was read earlier. This is a love that is not conditioned on anything outside of God. It is a love that flows from the very core of his character. He will love those whom he has chosen because he's committed. He's faithful. He will keep faith to his own character. And that is glorious news for us because it does not ultimately depend on us. God chose you. In in all of this, you might be thinking, wow, Paul sounds very Calvinistic. Of course, the reverse is true, isn't it? Right? Calvin was very Pauline. Yes. We have great reason to give thanks to God. He has chosen his people. But Paul offers more encouragement through this text. A second word of encouragement is to stand firm in the truth. Verse 15. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. What does Paul mean by the traditions? Hold to the traditions that we've taught you. He uses the same word elsewhere, for example, in 1 Corinthians eleven two, 2, where he commends the church to maintain the traditions delivered to them. Uh, this, is, this is creedal kind of language. We recite together the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. Uh, we promote and teach the Westminster Confession and the Catechisms. This is a word, this word for traditions here, that would include the scriptures themselves, but also the teaching that flows from the scriptures the teaching and the preaching, the exhorting from that word to them. And he's saying, hold to these things. Well, they're to to do two things, stand firm and hold to. Now, these are metaphors. Paul uses the metaphor of walking the Christian life, running the race. These are metaphors, not referring to the call to literally or physically stand firm or to hold to, Stand firm means grab hold. That's what those words mean. Stand firm means grab hold. And then those words hold to mean don't let go. So we're to take hold of these things and do not let them go. And it's good for us to ask ourselves in our lives, this morning, what are we holding on to to give shape to our life? What are we holding on to to give meaning or direction to our lives or joy? in our lives. Recall Paul's words in Philippians chapter 3 where he's describing his life in Judaism as a Pharisee and he provides that kind of outwardly impressive spiritual resume. He says, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, zealous for the law, a Pharisee. But then he says, but whatever gain I had I count as loss that I may gain Christ and his righteousness. Not that I've already obtained this, or am already made perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He's saying, whatever I was holding on to, for my security, my identity, I let it go. And I took hold of Christ, and the life found in him. There's a wonderful relationship, both in Paul's words there in Philippians, but also in our text, between God's grip and our grip. Paul calls us to grab hold of the word, grab hold of the faith, but it is the result of God's hand in our lives. He has chosen us. He has redeemed us. He has set his love upon us. This point is well summarized by a verse in Proverbs. Proverbs 4, 13. Keep Firm hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Charles Spurgeon comments on this verse in Proverbs. Spurgeon says, to take fast hold, and if you were to see in English the translation in Proverbs, it just simply says uh, to, to, to to keep hold. Keep hold of instruction. But there's an emphasis upon a firm hold. And so Spurgeon's picking up on that. He says, to take fast hold or firm hold is an exhortation which concerns the strength, the reality, the heartiness, and the truthfulness of faith. And the more of these, the better. If to take hold is good, to take fast hold, firm hold, is better. Even a touch of the hem of Christ's garment causes healing to come to us. But if we want the full riches which are treasured up in Christ, we must not only touch but take hold. And if we would know from day to day the very uttermost of all the fullness of his grace, we must take fast or firm hold and so maintain a constant and close connection between our souls and the eternal fountain of life. From touching to taking hold, to taking firm hold. And I think that's part of what Paul is emphasizing. Take hold and do not let go. And we know in our Christian faith that we have that call to obedience, of sowing to the Spirit, that we might reap the fruit of the Spirit. And So we are to uh, pour ourselves out in our heart and our efforts in obedience and seeking Him Because he has taken hold of us. And there is riches of his grace as a result. And then you have a final encouragement from Paul. It comes in the form of this prayer of supplication. uh, That we would trust in God's providential hand. His eternal comfort. He says, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father. Who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope. Through grace, comfort your hearts. The structure of this verse uh, is worth noting. The first word of verse 16 is actually the word himself. It takes what some call first position. It's actually himself referring to Christ. It's there for emphasis. May Christ Jesus himself comfort us. And God, God our Father, comfort us. Comfort your hearts. We have many things that may comfort us in in a godly way. Friends, family, elders, pastors. But Paul is, he's going directly to Christ here. May may Christ, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself, he is with us to comfort us. And we know this comfort is not a sure-fire protection from hardship. As we look at our own lives, or trials, or deep pains, or illness, right? some of us are even now experiencing those hard realities. But the comfort is this, that without exception, in every valley, in every trial, in every suffering, it is Christ himself who is with you. He is with you. Think of the Psalm 139, the Psalm of David. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly while the nearer waters roll, while the tempest still is high. Hide me, O my Savior, hide, till the storm of life is past. Safe into the haven guide, O receive my soul at last. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, how we praise you for the encouragement that you bring to us as your people. Encouragement to be grateful that you have chosen a people and that you have chosen us in Jesus Christ. Encouragement to stand, to take hold of your word, the precious truth of the gospel. How relevant it is today as much as ever. Encouragement to trust in that hand of providence, the eternal comfort that you provide us, that you are with your people through every valley, through every season. Lord, would you fill our hearts with gratitude and fill our hearts with love, love that comes from you. For this we pray with thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.